Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 16. So this week, let's talk about perspective. Have you ever stepped back and looked at the perspective you have of the things happening in your career? A quick check on how you are letting your situation occur to you can go a long way in making positive change in both your career and your life. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that when something happens in your life, Are you aware of how you look at it and how it affects you? Inevitably, you will react to everything that happens on your journey in one way or another. Now, it's your choice whether that occurrence works for or against you. Taking a negative perspective of the situation can be a huge hijacker of success. You probably think this sounds like it's as basic as glass half full, glass half empty. Well, it kind of is. If you are taking a negative view of the experiences around you, that energy will feed into your thought process and hold you back from your goals. You will eventually grow to live out that negative path. Let's jump back to something I mentioned in a previous opening. Your mind likes to be right. If you believe that your career is at a standstill, then the way you experience your day-to-day life will reinforce that belief. Why? Because like I said, your mind likes to be right. And the way the world will occur to you will fulfill that belief, for better or for worse. Here's an example of how your mindset can affect the way something occurs to you. Let's take the way a news story, book, or interview might be taken differently by two different people. Both people will experience it in a way that will reinforce their preconceived notions of the topic. So, with that in mind, let's go back to the initial question. Have you ever stepped back and reflected on how you are perceiving your situation? Is everything happening around you happening to you? Do you view yourself as a victim of everything? If you think your career is not going anywhere, I guarantee that you will be citing the things that are happening as your reasons for it. So, on the flip side, imagine a world where things aren't happening to you and that the world isn't working against you. In a world like that, you aren't complaining about mix recalls. Instead, you're excited that you get to mix a song. You aren't frustrated by distracted crowds at your show. You're energized about having the privilege to perform for the 10 hyper-focused fans in the front row. Not getting a gig is no longer a career-ending moment, but instead a moment to be thankful that you had a chance at the gig when many other people didn't. Flipping your perspective on everything to have a positive spin not only makes you feel better, but it keeps you focused on your vision and feeling like you're making progress. Things that were setbacks and excuses before now become small victories and learning experiences that are setting you up for future success. To be clear, 
Do bad things happen? Of course bad things happen, but they don't have to stop you in your tracks. If you understand how a situation relates to your vision and your goals and can identify how to learn from it, then the worst things won't be the worst anymore. So I encourage you to give it a shot. The next time something comes your way, take a second to think about it. Think about how you view it, then think about what part of your vision that view is fulfilling. Ask yourself, is it good? Is it bad? Is there maybe a part of your vision that needs to be tweaked? Are you still on course for your goals? These are the types of questions you should be asking. And keep in mind that some opportunities will seem like a positive, but they will actually be serving a part of you that is a distraction from your ultimate goals. That's probably a conversation for another day, though. It's going to take a minute. So in closing, how the world occurs to you is your choice. Look for negative and get negative. Look for positive and get positive. Today's guest is Grammy-nominated recording engineer and mixer Martin Cook. Martin's resume reads like a who's who of alternative and rock and roll. To name just a few, he's worked as an engineer with Death Cab for Cutie, of Monsters and Men, Kimbra, At the Drive-In, Van Halen, Muse, and Pearl Jam, amongst many others. And on the mixing side, he's done projects for Destroy Boys, Chaos Chaos, Seawolf, and most recently added Death Cab to that list as well. I'd argue that you'll have a hard time finding somebody else his age that has a better understanding of the dynamics of a recording session and the demeanor required for success in that world. So welcome to the show, Martin Cook. Hey, Martin. Hey, Trav. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Good. Cold in my studio. It's always cold in the morning. It's getting cold everywhere. So let's get get right into uh, how's your golf game? It's terrible. I'm supposed to play tomorrow, and I haven't played since the day after Thanksgiving, which was a horrible experience. <laughs> and my back hurts. So I'm sure it'll be great. Perfect. Well, you know, the, the, good, the good rounds always come after the bad rounds, so it should be good. Great. As our, as our good friend said, first comes the bird, then comes the turd. Exactly. You're going the other way. This would be the inverse of that. Be the yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so... Uh, Let's uh let's jump in. I mean, I I we know each other really well, so I know your story, but we got to like lay down kind of the the base for some of our listeners. How'd you get started in music and how'd you end up in LA? I got started, I guess technically I got started in music when I was a young man. I took piano lessons like I think in grade school, and my parents bought an upright piano for me and my younger brother so we could have something to play in the house. And when I hit middle school, I guess like what's that 5th grade? I auditioned for band, initially wanting to play the trumpet because it was the instrument that required the least amount of assembly out of the case. <laughs> just stuck a mouthpiece in it. That was my reasoning. But they asked anyone that played piano to audition for percussion. So I auditioned for percussion, and I guess I kind of was a natural at that, and I was like first chair percussionist basically through my junior high, high school career, you know. I ended up going to school in Houston where I'm from for music education at the University of Houston. And after like two years, decided I did not want to do that. So I uh, I got into, um, funny enough, the Lord of the Rings extended DVD set. There's all these great behind the scenes features. And I got really obsessed with the um, film scoring and the sound design. Like it was like blew my mind, like what they could do. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do something like on that level, that epic level. So I eventually transferred to Berkeley where I, I was originally a film score major, had no idea what I was doing. Like I could arrange stuff, but that was about it. And then I kind of was like, maybe I should, 
you know, I think it was like basic tech classes we had to take, if I recall. And that got me, I was like, yeah. oh, this is kind of cool. Like manipulating sound, recording, things like that. So then I changed my major to music synthesis, which was like kind of like do whatever you want with noise major. It sounded fun, you know, sound design, you know, creating patches on synthesizers, manipulating samples, things like that. But then for there, you had to take a basic recording class, like how to mic a kick drum, how to mic a vocal, whatever, you know, basic signal flow. And I got into that and I was like, wow, this is really cool too. So then I was like, oh, great, what do I do here? And I realized that the two majors had a series of overlapping um, curriculum. Yeah. So I was just like, I could do both of these and like knock out half this stuff. Like, you know, this class will count for both. So I dual majored in music synthesis and what was called music production and engineering. I think they both have different names now. But, um, and yeah, I moved out to LA thinking that I would work in a recording studio and then do film scores on the weekend, (laughs) 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 which is looking back a bit of a pipe dream. And, you know, I interviewed at a couple studios and I got a job at Henson thanks to Jesse String who called me after I got denied at Sound Factory because they didn't have any positions. And, uh, yeah, started working there, and do I keep going? Do I keep going to now? <laughs> you can stop there. I, actually, I just realized that I said that I knew like everything about you, and I did not know that you wanted to do film scoring. How did I, that just? It felt- was for like a, it was a hot minute. It was like I think the first semester of Berkeley, where like you didn't actually get into your major yet. You were still taking like piano one and like you know theory one and all that. Right. So education, percussion, piano. You wished you played trumpet. Yep. Few people can say they wish they played trumpet. Film score and synthesis. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I. looking back, I would say I wish I played trumpet. It was just like, I remember sitting there in the fifth grade, you know, when they're like filing kids into different instrument groups and they're like showing the different instruments and like the band director pulls out a trumpet out of the case and all he does is he pops a mouthpiece in and then he pulls out like a bassoon and it takes like 30 minutes to put together <laughs> and it's in this giant case and I'm like... It was either that or flute. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to play flute. That's a, that's a girl's instrument. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that was my fifth grade mind. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I played in orchestras and stuff when I was in Houston. I played in the ballet and the opera and the symphonies. I did the marching band and the whole thing. I was hardcore into drumming for a long time. Like I didn't have a social life in high school. I went home from school and I played my drums all day, like all afternoon. Let's jump back to... When you got to LA, you you went for a job at a recording studio, but you were also a synthesis major. What made you lean that way? Was it the way that the programs were developed where it was more of like a path, like, hey, you're going to get a job in a recording studio and like on the synthesis side, like you you decided not to pursue that? Like, how'd you end up recording studio versus like synthesis keyboard player producer? Um, I think that was because when I started working at Henson, I didn't have a day off for 90 days and I worked nights the entire time. And I quickly realized that if you were going to work at a place, you know, with the caliber of Henson, then there was no time for anything else. Like there just wasn't. I literally, it was like 90 days straight before I had a day off. That is amazing. And I was working 5 p.m. to whenever, you know, sometimes midnight, sometimes 8 a.m. the next day when the day guys showed up, depending on the clients. I mean, it, that's just what it was. And there was no time. That That's how it happened. How, uh, how many rooms do they have over there for people that don't know? Um, when I was started there, I guess it was 2007. See, A, A was fully bookable. B was fully bookable. C was locked down by John Shanks. Um, D was fully bookable. The mix room was fully bookable. And then we had 
Wendy and Lisa upstairs. Lester Mendez was upstairs at the time. Um, then we had Randy Jackson in the basement. Not the basement. I mean, that sounds bad. <laughs> There's these <laughs> studios in the basements that were old mastering rooms. They, they converted to production rooms. Randy had a room down there. Uh, Red One was down there. So we catered to like, you know, Nate Jenkins was still on the property. Alex Gibson was still on the property. So, you know, we catered to everybody. And when I started, there were five runners at a time. Fully, a full runner staff was five people. No, five, like, yes, 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 full staff, five. Right. So we'd have two guys, two people there during the day. And then at night, one dude was, you know, night guy, senior runners, and, you know, basically night manager, and the other two. So we were running, like, one person would basically cover, like, three to four clients, depending on how busy it was. Oh, wow. And you just didn't stop. So yeah, lots of rooms, four bookable rooms and a bunch of lockouts. And I believe it's still like that. I haven't been over there in a while, but, um, you know, it's still pretty, pretty crazy over there in a good way. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I definitely think, um, it's one of the, the big studios in LA that stayed really, really busy and always packed and is always a, a favorite of artists and always a favorite of engineers, producers. So yeah. What was the road like there? I mean, obviously for people that don't know running, running's like, you're going to go get everything Maybe you're going to help set up some sessions. Probably not. It's, you're basically an intern. Yeah. You know? Like, you're basically a paid intern. And, uh, I mean, running over there was intense. And, like, I kind of knew that going in. They run a really tight ship over there. And for very good reason. You know, it's not easy. It's not fun a lot of the times. But um, they want you to be able, like, the way Henson would work is, like, education started at the running level. Like, they never hired from without. It was only promote within. So once you ran for a couple of years... Usually it's like two years, which I knew going in. Like I knew all of this going in based on people I had talked to. I had talked to some other alumni that had come out to LA, people that like you that were out here before me, like Jesse, people like that, Jesse String. And I, I, I knew that going in. So like they educate you from, from, the, from day one. And the idea is that like if you can't figure out someone's food order and get that correctly, how are you going to be trusted to patch something correctly, you know? Right. Or to recall something correctly, you know? And the good thing is by the time you're a staff engineer there, you know everything about the system, like where the pins are, where the, where this is, where these mic cables are, where, you know, how everything works. And the whole point is just to keep it a extremely fluid machine. And, you know, I think that's why Henson has had such success over the years. And they, I mean, obviously they have the pedigree because it used to be A&M studios, but um, they also have great management that just run the place really well. And it's all systematically built for success there. You know, they, like they don't let people slack off and just get by as far as staff goes. Right. Well, yeah, there's a uh, it's it, the big studios. I think they really push attention to detail. And when it comes down to 100 oh, like, the you know, the sharpened pencils is seems like a stupid thing to address. But like if you don't know that every pencil does not need to be sharpened, then yeah, you're going to miss When things. you're doing like, I mean, we're talking about like, like pre T-Boy audio, pre all these like online, like we're doing handwritten like thick recall packets for mixes, you know, like almost oh, yeah. every piece of gear in the room marked by hand. And if you don't have a sharp pencil to notate like where the knob is on an 1176 or something, then it's so frustrating. It's super frustrating. <laughs> and you understand that. And then you know why you spend so much time making sure all the pencils were sharp when you were a runner. Would, uh, do you remember when you first started to make that, that transition into assistant engineer there? What were your first gigs? Were they like big pressure cookers? Well, it's funny over there because they throw you in the fire like towards the end of your running time. 
um, that typically sometimes like I think my first assisted like when I was an assistant on a session I was actually only a year into running and I think it was like if I recall it was some last minute thing and all the other staff guys were either booked or unavailable and I was like almost senior at that time I was maybe like one step away from being the senior guy so they just were like you know you're going to do this session and is the senior I, guy basically the shoe in for the promotion is that kind of yeah usually okay. usually yeah usually it's seniority there it's like who's ever been around the longest i mean basically they're the whole thing there is like after two years you're either gonna get promoted or you're gonna get fired like that's just kind of how it works you know if you don't get fired or quit before then right um but i think it was a vocal session or a writing session with um uh a, 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 a interscope artist and we were just like he had come in and we set up a bunch of instruments and uh yeah, we just like track stuff and it was fine, you know, it's cool. <laughs> but then like, you know, they'll typically what happens is you'll go in as a third engineer where you're assisting an a staff guy who's assisting, you know, a client engineer. Right. So you start to you start to get to watch what the job you're yeah. about to get is supposed to be doing and start wrapping your head around that. Yeah, you definitely fly definitely fly in the wall. And like bigger sessions, like when we do full tracking with like Pearl Jam and stuff, it would be like, you know, you're involved. You're not just because it's like you have like the producer, the engineer, the editor who's in the other room, the assistant engineer. You have all those four dudes to take care of. And then you have the entire band, which could be up to five people, you know, cartage coming in and out. You know, it's a lot of work. Oh yeah. It's a lot of logistics. Yeah. But yeah, you would do those and then eventually as a runner you would get you know, some like probably like low hanging fruit gigs, like vocal sessions and stuff. And it's probably mainly just to see how you do with people, you know, because that's like 99.9999999% of the job is like getting along with the people that you're in a small room for for 12 hours. Totally. Yeah, that's uh, one of the one of the questions that I was going to ask you later was, was do you think it's more important to have your technical skills and shape your people skills? I, I think it's people skills. Obviously, you do. Too. You just said it. Yeah, I mean, I know plenty of great engineers i mean guys that i learned from staff guys that were there before me at henson that are amazing engineers and work on amazing records but like weren't people people you know it's like it's it's a hard thing to do and it's hard to like judge the people you're working with when you've literally just met them you know yeah exactly if you're enjoying this episode then please consider pulling your phone out tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Is there anything that, because I think you you excel at that, like you're really good in a room and you're like, you're witty, you're easy to, to work with and communicate with. Anything you found that helped you get that way? Or were you just always that way? It was just easy for you to walk uh, in these rooms and just be friends with everybody? No, because sometimes it's not like that. I always use humor. I think humor is a very good litmus test. So like if I was an assistant with a client that I'd never met before, an artist I've never worked with, you know, engineer I've never worked with, basically a room full of people that know each other already and you don't know any of them and they don't know you, I would usually stay pretty chill. You know, you obviously introduce yourself and, you know, but I would I would stay pretty quiet and then I would, as the day would go on, I would try to crack a joke you know, using my sense of humor, which is pretty sarcastic and dry, 
And if no one laughed, then I would just be like, all right, I'm not talking until someone asks me something. Like, I'm, that's it. But if someone else laughed, I'd be like, okay, cool. Like, we're kind of on the same page oh, here. And I, honestly, that was a really good test for me, you know? And like, I just, I would use that all the time, you know? And eventually you get into a cycle of repeat clients, which is great. But um, when you get the new ones, you're just kind of like, I have no idea. You know, I don't know what's going on. We're going to see if someone laughs at this. And if someone does, then I, I'll... I can figure out where I belong in this situation. Did you, um, I would talk to another person about this. Did you ever battle with the um, sit down, shut up attitude that I think is kind of instilled in people as they come up through the big studios? Did you ever think, man, I wish I would have talked to that person some more, or I wish I would have made better relationships working on this record for a week, but I was too ingrained with be quiet and go go in the corner and hide? No, I, I don't think so. Because I feel like if if the person that I was working with, you know, if, if I'm sitting there and I'm like at the assistant's desk, whatever, you know, taking notes, not saying anything until someone asks me a question or, you know, in my, what I always felt that like if that person isn't interested in what I have to say about anything or, you know, whatever, then it's, it's probably not someone you're going to want to work with anyway, you know, like the best relationships that I made through being an assistant were with engineers and producers that you know, would have open conversations with me about things or something, you know, like I've had like yeah. top name mixer dudes be like, do you, what do you think that, do you think this sounds good? I'm like, dude, you've been mixing records for like 30 years and you're asking me, I'm like on year three here asking me <laughs> if I think this sounds good, you know, but like if someone doesn't have, doesn't want to put the effort into like communicating with me then I would just write that off as like, we're not vibing or whatever. And it never hurts my feelings ever because yeah. that's just how it is. But I would just be like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. But I made plenty of relationships with, you know, I got asked to be on sessions like with repeat clients all the time. And that's what you want, obviously. But I never, oh, you yeah. know, I never took it personally. I mean, I think one thing I always say to people, I think mixing more than engineering, but it's like sometimes you get these new clients and they're hesitant because they're like, well, I don't know if you're going to click with our sound or like, can we do a test mix, whatever, you know. And I'm always like, like, I don't want to do test mix but I'll mix a song for you. And if you don't like it, we'll get it right. I was like, you, you're not going to hurt my feelings. This isn't my song. Right. I'm not going to take it personally. You know what I mean? And I think that's just something that you kind of have to understand going in is that, you know, if I was the songwriter and I was writing a lyric and someone was like, that lyric sucks, I would take that personally because that's a personal thing. But if someone's like, I don't like that reverb on the vocal, but like, cool, let's try something else. You know, like it's not my baby. You know, like I'm not, you know, I'm just trying to help deliver it. That's all. Oh, dude, I totally agree. And I think, well, I think anybody that that is mostly mixing, but engineering as well, you have to get past that because you do take it personally for a while. You know, when you first start, mix notes come across as just like really aggressive and offensive to you. And But you're right. It's it's their song. You're just trying to make it better. It's not about like you, your snare sound. It's about their snare sound. Absolutely. You know? And, you know, I think if you try to make it your thing, unless someone goes... We like what you did on X song. Can you try to do that yeah. on this? You know, unless someone specifically asked for it, it's not like you're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. You know, no, it's and I tell that to clients all the time. Like when new clients, they're like, especially for mixing, it's like there's typically two ways I do a mix with a new client, and this is what I'm telling them. It's like either you're really happy with where you are, but you can't really get it over the finish line. You just need to enhance. Need me to enhance what you've done. Yep. Or you don't know how to get it from 
you know, basic tracking to this kind of uh, big picture stuff. Uh, getting into another world, like there's you're they're stuck there, and that's your job to help facilitate that. And that can be really difficult, especially you know, because that then you get into like production decisions, and it gets a bit blurry. But um, yeah, it happens every once in a while, and you you know, basically like yeah, it's two things. It's like you're either trying to do the last five percent, or you're doing like ninety five percent. Yes. Well, yeah. and I think the the pendulum really swings to the last five percent as you move along. I mean, some of the the artists that you've been working with over the last few years, they're they're giving you what they believe is done, and it's and it's like you said, your job to take it the last five percent, look for those little issues, balance it out the way it needs to be balanced. You're just caressing their vision. It's like the kids that are starting out, and you start mixing like, you know, your first records. You do so many more things that I think. Uh, like feed your own ego to a certain extent. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But you're I also dealing with people that don't uh, they don't know what they want, and they didn't they never finished the song. So it's like when you're like uh, when you're new, you can kind of feed your mixer ego or your engineering ego, and, and it works out. But then like once you kind of break through, like you need to put that stuff back in the closet because people are giving you stuff that they really believe in. So yeah, yeah, I, totally. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, Let's just really quick just run through your transition from leaving Henson. You went on to work with Rich Costi. Now you're freelance. Like, let's just just run through that for our audience. How how did that right. happen? How did you decide to leave a place like Henson? Well, I actually kind of had a game plan going in. I had a pretty pretty long planned out arc. Like when I first moved to LA, like I knew okay. I was gonna, I wanted I wanted I knew I wanted to work in a studio and and do that whole grind because to me it was like going to grad school you know like sitting there next to people that are making records for 30 years is like you'll never experience that anywhere else you know right so i knew that going in i knew that going in and uh i knew that i'd be a runner for two years because you either quit or you get or you either get fired or you get hired after two years and luckily i got hired and when i became a staff engineer i was like all right i think i'm gonna do this for like four years and when I got to year four as a staff engineer, I was like, all right, this is year four. I need to start like thinking about how I'm going to go into the next phase, which was what I, and I knew that I wanted to go work for like work in like a designated kind of team situation. Yeah. After that, like working for a producer or working for an artist or, you know, finding one person to work with after that. And I just that year four of being a staff engineer, I started emailing clients um, and just looking for like, hey, you need help with some editing or something like outside of Henson, trying to pull work outside of that, even just doing it in my apartment. Um, what was their opinion on, on moves like that? Henson? Yeah. Um, did they promote that? Yeah. Or I mean, were you they, like uh, underground? They, no, they wanted you to succeed. Like okay. they wanted you to eventually work for someone and go like that. That was, you know, and then come back as a client, you know, like that was the whole plan. Right. Um, and it happened with lots of guys like, I mean, there were dudes that went on to work for Randy Jackson and like Brendan O'Brien was a huge client and one of our guys became his main dude for, you know, years. And that's how it was supposed to go. But I just kind of started emailing some engineers and producers that I had really good relationships with and I didn't get any work from them, but I got an email from one of them who had just done a tracking session with, uh, with Rich and he was like, hey, I was just doing this session with Rich. Um, he really needs a new day-to-day -day guy. And I recommended you, but the person that recommended me, I sent an email to him like two months before and was like, Hey, you know, if you need any extra help. So he already knew that I was looking 
to start getting my feet out the door of Henson. Yeah. And, you know, and it was about the right timeline. You know, it was about four years. It just kind of all worked. I had that timeline going. And then after working for Rich, I worked for Rich for, I don't know, almost five and a half years. Like the last year was kind of like half of me being freelance, half of me doing like only like bigger records with him. Like I, the last year I'd stopping has been his mix assistant basically. And was like, I'll still do stuff with you, but I don't want to do, you know, setups and recalls anymore. I'll track records and stuff. But, and I got to that point and then kind of left Rich to do my own thing in like 2018. And it was like, all right, now I just got to figure out how I'm going to do this and work on stuff that I want to work on, you know? Yeah. And that was kind of the end. That's the end of the arc. And I think <laughs> I'm still figuring that out. But, uh, I mean, that's basically it. I had a, I had a pretty point to point plan. Well, and you already in mind too. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, honestly, I can't attest it to, I mean, anything other than like I worked hard and I think I got some good timing with people, you know, I met some cool people along the way and, you know, I don't know. A lot of people like to say that, like, oh, if you, you set these goals and your dreams and stuff, you'll eventually. It's like, I, but I also think a lot of it's like timing and luck. I mean, luck's not the best word, but there's a lot of random stuff that can happen. I mean, I passed up gigs before going to work for Rich because I was just like, and they were cool. Get, I mean, I don't say cool. They were good gigs as far as like work and money, but I was just like, I don't know if I'd be happy doing that. You know, just kind of followed my gut. I guess that's my overall general thing. Just follow your gut, you know, like don't gut. do something. Don't do something like if you have to second guess whether you should do something or not, you probably shouldn't do it. I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I think every time I've gone against my gut, I've ended up wrong eventually. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Oh, so that goes from anything from like saying yes to doing a one day session to like mixing to, you know, saying no to someone who like you could have worked for the rest of your career if you wanted to you know yeah yeah but, yeah which I, I definitely did do i wanted to go back to your luck i feel like in this i i agree and disagree with you i feel like the word luck should be removed from the music industry entirely yeah i think more I like, think it should be replaced uh, with opportunity. opportunity because it's like yeah an opportunity came your way and you were prepared you were there and you succeeded because yes. you took it i mean that's yeah. the word that that's how people describe luck. But I really think that you're one of the hardest workers I know. You were prepared for every chance you got. So the ones you chose to take panned out. And you can call those luck if you want. But, you know. Yeah, what is it? In, isn't like luck the the convergence of like timing and skill or something? There's some phrase. Don't quote yeah. me on that. But there's some yeah, phrase if, like that. If this was Joe Rogan, we'd have like somebody Googling it over in the corner. But we, we don't. Right. We, um, well, okay. So then kind of a long... Along those lines, like I want to touch on some specifics from some of the records you've done maybe, but I have an opinion. I want to know if you agree or disagree with me. I feel like you and I are part of this like last generation of engineers that will experience that traditional studio path that you basically just described as your arc. You've followed that path more than I have. I've kind of like wandered around, but I've been like, I've been near it. You know, it's like get a job at a big studio, runner. You've been adjacent. I've been adjacent to it. That's right. Uh, get a job at a studio, become a runner, move to assistant, start engineering, get like exactly what you just described. I think it's dead now. What What do you think? I mean, if you were going to start today, do you think it works? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it. Well, I think there's so yeah, there's so much that's different than you know what 14, 14 years ago when I moved out here, fifteen when yeah. you moved out, whatever sixteen. It's just so different because like 
I, I think the economics of the industry have a huge thing to do with it because like only certain level artists can afford places like Henson or Capital or Village or whatever, you know, because it's, you know, thousands of dollars a day they're spending. Yeah. And I think it's um, stylist, you know, uh, music, like stylistically, like there's not that many like bands anymore that need places like Capital or Henson, need these big rooms to record. And like you can make, obviously, this broken record, but you can make a record in your house now. You know, it's like. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean. If I were to move out here, like now, this time, like, you know, assuming there was no coronavirus, like, I don't know. I don't know if it would, if you'd make it, you know? Dude, I totally agree. Would you, not to, not to make it like dark, but would you almost describe engineering as like a, uh, a fading skill set? Like the art of recording um, a band, what you're good at and what a lot of guys that you came up under are good at, like how long before that comes back around? Uh, I mean, I think it all depends on musical trends, and I, I think there is a bit more of band-esque music coming back, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to be made the same way that it used to be. It's like I, I don't think I it mean, will be. Like okay, like that Machine Gun Kelly song that came out whatever last month, and it just sounds like a you know a pop punk record from early two thousands. Yeah, like a Blink record, you know, which is cool and all, but like I doubt he made it like a Blink record. Like I doubt they went in the studio and like hash it out and then overdub you know what i mean like a traditional band record right even though like stylistically it sounds the same i don't think it's made the same and that so i guess to your point like i think some like the skill set of being able to like manage a band in the studio is uh, again this kind of goes back to like it's not so much about the technical side it's more about like you know i, I gotta watch out for the producer like I gotta watch out because I gotta make him happy because he's trying to make the band happy and the band's trying to make the label happy. You know, it's like this whole food chain thing. And you're, <laughs> and when you've got you know, three people on the production side and five people in the band, you're talking about like eight people that you're, that you're like when the band gets mad, they look at the producer and he turns and looks at the engineer and the engineer turns and looks at you as the assistant and then you look at, you know, your third or, the runner that brought the wrong sauce back from Chick Fil A, like, that's just how it goes and. <laughs> I don't think it has that much to do with like recording though. I will say that like when I have worked with people that have recorded themselves and then they ask me to help them on things and they like hear the same equipment they've used, but used a bit more properly to get the best out of it. They're like, Whoa, I didn't know you could, I didn't know this was possible. And that's right. when I think your technical skill set comes out, you know, but it's easy to like, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've gone and recorded drums at somebody's house and gotten really cool sounds, and then I don't get a call back because the drums already sound good. They don't need anyone to come, you know, record <laughs> them anymore. And it's like you kind of just like you shoot yourself in the foot sometimes, but you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I've known a couple guys that have gone over and like set up really great rigs for uh, some of those drummers that are killing it, you know, doing session work. But then that's it. It's like everybody spent their money, they got their setup, they got it dialed. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean I think that the to answer, I guess to answer, uh, to shorter answer your question is, I, I, I don't think that it's, uh, like, I don't think it's going to go away, but I think the engineer skill set is definitely on the endangered list because I learned everything from sitting with guys that have been doing it for years and years and years, guys and girls. And those opportunities, going back to, you know, working in a big studio, it seem like they're less and less these days. I may be wrong because I haven't been, you know, in big studios, but. Yeah, I think that the the passing on of that knowledge is getting less and less. Uh yeah, I I totally agree. I feel like engineering is like is becoming absorbed by 
everybody else that's involved in making the records. I mean, you, now you've got like session players getting their own guitar sounds, which is fine. I mean, they, they're getting great sounds and, and whatnot, but it's like, it's becoming the first job that is being replaced by somebody else. And at the same time, like, I just, I think that it requires people that want to be an engineer to kind of approach it differently. Like people just need to adapt a little bit and kind of just understand that you need to find where you fit into this new puzzle because the the system is not what you thought it was when you came here or it's not what you read in in the book or it's not like mixer man right, diaries yeah, yeah. or whatever it is that that system's gone now so um i think it's just important for people to find where they fit you know what i mean oh t totally totally yeah because i mean when i first moved to la me and the guy i moved with was a friend from berkeley it was like we were gonna like rent a house and build a studio in a house and make like Ethan John's records. Like that was our goal to make these like right. cool, you know, alt country sounding, you know, records. And that's what we wanted to do. And I mean, I was obsessed with like Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake productions. And all I wanted to do was like make records like that. And as you, you know, your career goes on and you spend more time on it, you realize it's like, oh yeah, that was like one in a million chances, like to make a record, like, a you know, like, to work with these kinds of artists that a lot of the reasons I got into engineering, you know, those influences, you're like, I want to do stuff like that. And it's like, oh yeah, those are very, very few and far between. Like just oh, the yeah. existence of artists of that, of that level, you know? Totally. Well, dude, since you mentioned Chad Blake, I was going to ask you, I know you're a huge fan. And at some point you worked out of studio B in sound factory for a year or two. Right. Um, what was that like? Cause that was, uh, I think we were there for like a year and a half. It was amazing. It was I was working for Rich, and at the time we were at um, El Dorado, which is a studio in Burbank, which is Dave Jordan's old studio. His second studio, the original El Dorado, was in Hollywood, and it like burnt down or something. And then he got this building in Burbank, and that's where the, they recorded a lot of uh, Jane's Addiction and all that stuff that Jordan would do. And anyway, we had to move out of that studio, and Rich was kind of like, him and his manager were trying to find places in town and we were still doing like tracking. So we needed tracking space, you know, not just a mix room. And he was like, what, what about sound factory studio B? And I was just like, uh, yeah, like that was, I mean, that was literally the first place that I interviewed when I came to LA. He was like, how about that? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So we moved in there and it was amazing. I mean, I, I used to, cause our, our, our friend Cameron, who's a previous guest on your podcast used to assist there. And I used to text him when I get done at Henson and be like, you know, midnight or something. Hey man, you're still working? Yeah. You got clients? No, no, I'm just wrapping up. I was like, cool. Can I come by? And I would just go hang out in the Studio B control room while he was like, pr you know, printing something or whatever, just because I wanted to be in that space because it was so cool. And then we moved in there and I was, it was, it was just exciting. It was just like all the stuff, like everything was still there that Chad and Mitchell had used all those years they were there making records and like they have this tiny little booth in the corner where Chad would always record drums and the first time I set up a drum set in there and like played it I was like oh my god like that's the sound it's the room like yeah he's like tweaked it over the years and it's like the room has this perfect EQ on it and you don't have to play very hard and the drums just sound you like put a 57 through a level lock I mean and it's like I mean sorry Chad but like the room is like so much of that sound. I mean, obviously he's a master of like, you know, you making that work with everything, but uh, it was just exciting. I loved it there. Did you, uh, like well, console's dope. Did you 
try to sneak uh, Chad moves into like every record you tracked in there secretly and not tell anybody? Well, I mean, Rich, I mean, Rich is a fan of like every engineer, like, and he's such like a gear and we're both just like tweak nerds, him more so than I am. <laughs> and it was just like, I knew that Chad would put like, usually some kind of Omni mic right over the, I guess the batter side head of the kick drum that would like, that was just like one mic thing, you know? Um, I think he would, I don't know if that's what he would send to the level lock, but that's what we did. And Rich bought a level lock. We found one on reverb or something. Some dude downtown had one. So we sent our assistant to go pick it up and we're like, cool. And then we're like, I mean, I put the mic there and then we bring it to the level lock and it was like, you know, that crazy over compressed sound that was just so cool. And I was like, that's it. That's how it works. So we tried it. I mean, the first record we tracked there was at the drive-in record um, inter alia and, uh, we didn't put the drums in the booth because Tony's drum set is way too big. So we had to put them in the main room. But I really wanted to do, like, I'm pretty sure we recorded the level lock anyway, even right. though it wasn't the right, you know, it wasn't where it should have been for Chad. But uh, yeah, we definitely tried it. We definitely tried it a bunch. But uh, obviously, like, you can't do that on, like, every, I mean, at the drive one's probably good because a lot of things are distorted on those records. But, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to do that if we were, like, working with Birdie or Kimbra or something. Right. Yeah, that's yeah that that would have been uh, that's awesome. So that kind of came like full circle for you. That's dope. Um, I mean, it was just like I I, I it's like it's, I've had a couple things like that happen to me since coming out here, or since being in music, and only like I would say twice that's happened. And they're like these moments where you're just like, oh yeah, this is why I like doing this. Like this is what this is what I get out of this. You know? Yeah. Well, you've got like you know it. It's a roller coaster, and you've got ups and downs, and and uh, I just I find that like the projects that I really love are the ones that kind of drive me through for you know years. Some of the my favorite records that I've done, I'm always like going back thinking about. Oh man, that was great! I just want to do a record like that again. So oh yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the time that you spent with Rich, who's obviously amazingly talented, top call mixer as well as a producer, watching him mix and, and having to be his mix assistant and do the recalls and, and handle, you know, uh, a lot of that assistant work there. Did that change the way that you wanted to mix or change the way that you wanted to work? Did you like pull things away from that that kind of were like mind bending for you? I think that um, I didn't pick up like, like I don't mix like Rich does for definitely. Like I'm not, a, you know, a clone of him. Um, I mean, definitely picked up some technical stuff like techniques, like ways he would parallel things or way, you know, you know, just stuff like that. But I think what I picked up most about Rich is, um, his like knowledge of what a piece of equipment sounds like and how that can like change the entire vibe of a mix. And that would be and mostly like mix bus stuff. I mean, I, it's impossible to give away Rich Costi's secrets because he likes to change what he does all the time. So, <laughs> But it would be like, we'd work for like an entire day or maybe two days on a song and it'd be sounding great. And he'd just be like, let's try a different compressor on the mix bus. Like something completely different, like completely different vibe. Yeah. And like most of the time he'd be right. Most of the time. Sometimes he'd be like, oh, never mind, go back, you know. But <laughs> he was always willing to try things. It'd always be like, okay, proof of concept, let's try this. You know, there was never like an idea. I mean, I guess this goes more into like a, working with bands, but there would never be someone that got denied the opportunity to try something. 
Oh, that's awesome. Know? And it went, it would go, it would fold back to his mixing, you know, because I think in his head he'd be like, I know we've been sitting here with this compressor on the vocal for a month that we've been mixing this album, but let's try something else, you know. At first it was frustrating because I was constantly repatching and constantly like re-noting you know, all this stuff. But then I realized it's like, oh yeah, no, it, it's it, it. This is making it better. Like he's absolutely and he just to know like what. He could go, I know I'm going to go to an 1176 instead of a distressor, and I'm going to set it this way, and I know what it's going to do and how it's going to change the impact of the song. And he was really good at that. Like, I never worked with anyone else that, like, changed stuff so much. Right. But always for the better. Usually the mixers I assisted were always just like, this is what I do. And it would be great, you know. But, like, that was his value of just, like, there were no, like, real rules. I mean, obviously he had, like, a set way of doing things, but it was, like, that wasn't it. You know, there's always ways to change things. But yeah, and it, you know, I think I'm trying to think of answering your question a better way. It might be shorter. <laughs> I, it definitely like the obviously technical things, you know. Yeah. Like I still use a couple tricks that he would use. Um, but it was more of a like approach stuff, you know. Right. Well, you guys did uh you guys did a bunch of records, some mixing, some producing and mixing. I guess maybe a better question is like on those projects that you guys were seeing from start to finish, you also moved studios like what two or three times you built the studio temporarily in Iceland. Like, are there big takeaways from like running a project like that and being in the hot seat for the entire thing and logistics of like getting gear to another country or making sure that we can do recalls at night while we're tracking a band during the day like that, anything in there, like do you steal tricks that you use in your day to day that keep you organized? Like no, because because Rich uh, Rich wouldn't do any of that. Like he like logistics was not his thing. <laughs> you know that. Sorry, Rich, if you're listening to this, but that, that that was like my job. It was like I'd get like an email that was like 18 forwards deep from his manager, and it's basically like, so when's the when's all Rich's gear getting to shipping to go to Europe? And I'm like, we're going to Europe, <laughs> like, no. like, huh? What did what did you do to make it through those situations? I think it's just me, my personality of being organized and on top of things. And okay. like, again, I think that well, I think that comes out of of my time at Henson, where it was like you were always five steps ahead of everybody. Like that was your job, right? You know, it was like, all right, we're it's eleven forty five. I need to remind somebody in thirty minutes that we need to order lunch, or we're gonna have a bunch of cranky, hungry people in the room. You know, like even as simple as that is like. That was my job. It was like, you know, we did a Death Cab record at Rich's studio in Santa Monica, and, like, we literally moved the console. We moved the entire room to, like, a corner so that we could use the room to record in because it was, like, a big, huge control room. And, like, it was like, yeah, so we got two days, you know, to set up a a tracking studio, basically, in a mix studio. And we used all of, like, Zach Ray, the keyboard player for Death Cab. He has a – at the time, his studio – had uh, just finished burning down and mm-hmm. all his stuff was in storage. And I went to his storage place and like went through every mic and checked all of them for fire damage and like brought them all back to Santa Monica and, you know, tested everything. And like, I've had to do that multiple times now. And that's just, I think my structured personality yeah, um, works well for that. I think that was a good balance between Rich and I is that he was very, I don't know, I always forget which side of the brain, but like, whatever the side is for creativity and kind of spontaneity, that's the richest side. And I'm definitely more the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm but the it same. worked well. If you had two 
you know, if he, if his engineer or mix assistant was too much like him, then I don't think anything <laughs> would have ever gotten done. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's good. Um, that's why he's written. I mean, that's why he's so good at what he does because he's, it's just, it's all that creativity side of him. Uh, so I got just a couple last questions. I mean, I guess we've touched on a lot of this, but do you have any specific tips for like a kid that wants to break into engineering or, or break into mixing in 2021? Is there like a first step that you would be like, you gotta do this. You probably don't know it, but you gotta do this. Man, that's a good question. Um, I think on the mixing side, I think uh, understanding how to like really listen to things. Mm. And I mean that in like, um, obviously whatever you're working on, but obviously like, like listening to references and like stuff you know and understanding like what that sounds like wherever you are. I mean, I'm in like my fourth studio at this point between apartments and like builds in my old house and then now in commercial places. And I feel like I just now I'm like, oh yeah, I can listen to mixes and hear the room I was in. You know, yeah. I understand like the choices I made, and I think that's such a huge thing. And then this maybe gets more into like the the technical side of it, but like understanding like the decisions you're making and how they're actually like impacting uh, the song, because like your room, if your room sounds like crap, you're gonna be making all these weird decisions. So like un in, like knowing that, being a, I guess aware, being aware of what's going on um, in the mix, and I think the only way to do that is just to do it. Like, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, I, think I, I feel like I'm just now figuring that out. And I'm on like year 14. Yeah. As far as engineering, I don't know. Like, I think, again, you just got to do it. It's like, start recording stuff. I wish I would have started recording random things more at the beginning of my, you know, arc. Like, I didn't do much gorilla recording, mostly because I was working all the time at Henson. But I think now if it was like, you know, buy a couple 57s or whatever in yeah. an, an Apollo and like learn how to Learn how to like make do with what you can because you can get cool sounds out of anything these days. It's just like there's no excuses for not, not necessarily like quote unquote pristine, clean sounds, but you can definitely record stuff that sounds like music very easily. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to go back to the, the learning to listen. It takes so long and it, it kind of what you were talking about with Rich with like the characteristics of the equipment and picking gear that he thinks in is going to influence how that song feels is like another level of listening that oh, yeah it's like know. it's just that's like that's decades like i i think maybe i can do that like maybe now or what happens to me a lot of times i start a mix and like i'm doing my thing like i have a pretty much a general like same setup i use you know i do have i don't have a ton of gear but you know what i like on certain places yeah and if like if it seems like i'm struggling to get a mix going, I'm like, there's some, my brain's like, there's something not right. Like something in my setup is not what it normally is. Sure enough, I'll find it like, oh crap, my bus compressor was in bypass all the time. Or like my parallels are wrong. They're not like it, something imported incorrectly. And like, I, I can tell when something feels wrong in my setup now. Because it like feels I've been harder. Using it enough. Yeah. I'm just like, why isn't that coming through? And it's like, oh yeah, right, right. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of that learning, you know, the, of learning like what, you know, what the gear does and, and like how it affects the music, you know, not just like technically, but like emotionally and all that. Cause it's really what it's all about. Yeah. The, that uh, takes a long time. How do you feel about some of the stuff that you're hearing and the bizarre ways that people are doing it coming from like the traditional world? 
I think it goes back to how it impacts you emotionally. I mean, obviously, like, like okay, take like hyper pop, like that's like a thing now, right? Yeah, with like pitched up vocals, like er, like usually you know the like hundred gecks that dude who's yeah. amazing. That guy's awesome. Very actually like amazing. I like some of his other projects, his solo, his Dylan Brady projects, better than the hundred gecks stuff because to me it's a bit more you know musical and for lack of a better term, listenable, though. I mean, it, that doesn't mean anything because, well, it, it's it, it's different for everybody. You know, it's like, that's why, like, a million people can like a song and a million people can hate the same song. Like, that's just, it's art. That's just how it is. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, um, like, I wouldn't, I, I think it's cool that people are just trying stuff, you know, and because I think that's how you, like, obviously experimentation is is part of it. And, like, when you don't have a solid fundamental set of, like, this is, how I've always done this, then you just try stuff, you know, and like you go, oh, that's cool, or that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's cool, that's you know, yeah. You go through different things. I don't know. Part of me wishes I had that, like, what's it called, beginner's mind, you know? Yeah. Like you're like you, every you, whenever you do something for the first time, it's always the best. That's cooking for me. Whenever I cook something new for the first time, it's always the best, and I can never, get never be it as good again. Yeah. It's I can do it good again, but never. And maybe that's just the experience of being like, oh shit, I just made the most bomb bowl of chili. For the first time, and like you're you're heightened because you just did this thing, you know. And when you try again, you're like, it's pretty good, but it's not what it was. But that's like hearing a song for the first time, you know. Yeah. Like there's that that brief moment that'll never exist again because once you listen to it a second time, you already have expectations for what's coming, how it affected you emotionally, you know, all that. I mean, I guess that happens every time you work on music, you know. Yeah. And not to go on a crazy tangent, but this like goes to like. Um, I was my friend Matt Lang, who's someone you should interview for the podcast, a fellow Berkeley alum, who's a really great electronic artist, composer. He was doing like a, you know, Instagram, ask me anything kind of thing. Someone was like, I asked him something about like, how how do you get to the point where the mix is like not quite there yet or it's not really connecting? And he just responded with, the song's probably not very good then or something like that. Like, it's probably not the mix, it's the song. And I, re- I just replied to him and I was like, preach, like, it's absolutely true. Like, oh yeah, doesn't matter how good your mix is. If if the song, if you don't connect with the song, you don't think it's good, and you're not enjoying it as a song, then like it's never going to be great. That's just unfortunately how it is. Because there's plenty of great songs that are mixed terribly. That are oh yeah, this song are, always awesome. wins. And and on the yeah. flip side of that, if you don't like the song, but I like the song, my mix will probably be good, and yours won't. Like you also have to like uh, absolutely. You have yeah, to like absolutely. it, and it also it had there has to be a bar. There is a bar of, you know, of quality that the song needs to be. But um, but yeah, it needs to connect with the yeah. person that's working on it. Do you ever find yourself like? Do you ever force yourself to go way outside of your box? Like I'm going to do something that I would think is ridiculous, and I'm going to see if I can make it cool. Um, I think I have before. Every time, and this goes back to trusting your instinct. Every time I've tried to, especially in a mix, like tried to mix differently than I would have like make different non-instinctual choices that always backfires mm. like I want to make this more like mid-rangey and lo-fi alt, you know weird alternative and I'll send the, the guy that I've mixed for for you know five or six songs already and he's just like yeah it's real mid-rangey and distorted and not really and I was like in my head I'm like that's exactly what I wanted <laughs> you're like and I then, nailed it and I'm like <laughs> oops well the fun part for I think in and I try to do this I try to do this every mix I don't, I fail sometimes, but I try to, I try to do something new every mix, like one thing, 
you know, okay. if it's a vocal effect or if it's like, you know, uh, trying a different compressor plugin or a different EQ or a different approach to like working on an instrument or a vo whatever, something, just one thing. I just try to do one thing and it either works or it doesn't, you know, it's just like, oh, that's cool. And then you bank that and you're like, okay, that's what that does. Um, I would say most of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> and I think that's just part of experimentation, you know, like you get lucky sometimes and then sometimes you're, you'll spend an hour on a thing and you're like, <laughs> as Rich would call it, flanging the bass, which is a, a long tangent story. But we would go down these flange the bass moments where, you know, you're like working on something and then you realize that you're not really doing anything good, you know. Right. But that's the proof of concept because if you don't go down that path, then you'll never know if you, you may discover greatness. You may. Uh, you'll never know if you don't take that path. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think just the comment you made earlier about how when you guys were making a record, every everybody got to try their idea. There were no ideas that were shut down. And I spend so much time, you know, in rooms with songwriters and, and producers, and, like, I find that when somebody makes a statement along the lines of, you know, there's no bad ideas in this room today, like, whatever comes to mind, you know, just, like, throw it out there those sessions always end up to be the best songs because i'm not saying people need to hear that sentence in order to be a good songwriter but when everybody's willing to hear every idea and give it a shot and then you can be like hey you know what we would have never done that if you hadn't suggested that ridiculous thing or i would have never used right. that word or i would have never distorted that or whatever it is so everything and sometimes you come across something like on the way you know it's like all right, let's try this. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm setting this up. And it's yeah. like, all right, let me plug in this guitar pedal into this pedal. And then someone plays something before you're done with the next pedal. And they're like, whoa, what's that? You know, I mean, that's happened. There was a song, we worked with this band called Powers. And we were tracking at Sound Factory in the booth drums. And a uh, great drummer, Sarah Singh, came by and did his thing. And we got to like the last song of the day. And I was like, let's just get ready for tomorrow. And we'll hit this tomorrow. So I'm like, the the band had used um, a sample, a Queen sample, um, from another one bites the dust, like the beginning of another one bites the dust as the loop for the demo, which obviously we couldn't use. Right. So we went to like recreate the sound, and it's just kick snare hi hat. You know, it's, it's super simple. So Sarah was like done for the day, and he took off, and I was like working on the basically the snare drum tuning. That was the thing. And we had this really cool old, um, like nineteen fifties Ludwig six lug snare. That was awesome, but it never stayed in tune because it was just old and like the rods were all jacked up. And so I'm like trying to get it right. Anyway, I end up changing heads on the drum, right? I'm like, I'm just put a new head on this. It's a bit beat. So I just take the drum down to finger tight on top. And just as a joke, I hit it. And it like hits that level lock mic like perfectly and it just goes like, Bush! and like Rich gets on the talk back and he's like, what is that? What is that? You know, like the art, the the band, uh, Mike the, is the Mike Del Rio, who's the writer, singer in the band. One, him and his um, girlfriend Krista are in there, and they're like, "That's what? That's amazing!" <laughs> and they're like, "Just play the beat." And I'm like, you know, and I, and they're like, "Great, we're done." Like we made a loop, and like I'm on that song, <laughs> and I get an eighty-six dollar check every year from the union because <laughs> I got on some TV show. But it's like, you know, like you never know what you're gonna come across. You know, I mean, that's not a perfect example of let's try this. And it was like, let's try to get that snare sound. Well, it was a happy accident. You didn't have yeah, to my hit intention that drum. Was like, let me put a new, yeah, let me put a new head on. 
Yeah. And then it just, and then it ended up being that, that, that was the snare, a completely loose drum head, a beat up drum head on this old snare drum. Just the way it hit that microphone, it was, it was perfect, you know? Like and maybe awesome. if we didn't have the, the Chad Blake thing set up, it might not have sounded like that, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, in closing, I got one more question, which is the one I, I close everybody out with. And that is, what is your current goal and, and what's the first thing you're going to do uh, to go towards it? Or I guess, you know, you said you didn't really set a lot of goals. You had arcs. What's your current arc? What are you doing? Well, I mean, I guess to be fair, when I when I started my transition from working for Rich full time to like trying to go freelance, like, you know, I was doing mixes, you know, on the weekends when I wasn't working for Rich or whenever I had downtime, which wasn't much, but I was like doing stuff at home, you know, trying to expand that. And I always had like, my first thing was like, okay, I'll do anything just to make some money and get experience and whatever. And I quickly realized like that's okay, I'm frustrated doing anything because some of the stuff I don't like and I don't want to work on things I don't like, blah, blah. So you get the next step, I think, was like, I told myself, I'll do, I'll work on something that I like, that I think is cool, you know. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to work on things that I think is cool and maybe other th- people will think are cool, you know. Right. So I think I'm at the point now where it's like, and this year I bet it's a bit of an asterisk for everybody, obviously, because yeah. like the lack of, of work and stuff is kind of forced you to do things that, you probably wouldn't normally do just, you know, keep the lights on. But uh, I'm trying to be in that mode of like, if someone sends me a rough mix or a demo, you know, like to follow my like gut instantly, you know, because I've heard a lot of bad rough mixes of stuff that I think is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'll totally produce this or I'll totally mix this or whatever, you know. So I guess whatever I can do to keep myself, I think, artistically satisfied and financially satisfied at the same time. I mean, obviously, that's like fine balance. Yeah, it's you know, it is. It's a pipe dream. Obviously, like you, you know, you can't do it all all the time. I'm just trying not to do things that make me frustrated with what I do. Right. If that makes sense, because I don't want to get to the point of where I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to my studio and work today. No. No, we're all doing like what the, we love. So the the goal is to to keep loving it. Yeah, and yeah. like you know, I mean, I I try to keep connections with artists that I've you know worked with you know consistently and keep that going but I always try to do new stuff too and I think I don't know you know I don't I don't think if I have a really like set end game because I don't know how this game actually ends because it just changes everything changes so much you know you're kind of always adapting and but I know what I like and I know what I like to work on and I just try to stick and be at least be honest with myself about that like I'm not no one's going to call me for like a top 40 pop mix you know like that's not what i do you know that's not my thing and i just try to stay what i think is in my lane and 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 somehow make that work i don't know if that's a very inspiring answer but do you uh, how did you come to kind of find what you believe your lane is is that something that you that you think you had when you came here or has it been like really when you started making records that you were like these are the sounds and the things and the vibes I'm good at. And these are the things I'm not. I think you learn it from your reaction with your clients. I don't think it's something you learn by yourself. You're saying when your clients are super satisfied and they're like super energized, you know that that's the thing you do best. Yeah. And especially when it becomes, when it, when you do it and it seems effortless to you and then people are like, Oh my God, this is the best we've ever sounded or whatever. You know, I love that thing you did. 
Um, I think that's when you're like, okay. I mean, it kind of sounds obvious when you say it out loud like that. It does, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like it's like whenever you watch someone do something like, you know, going back to golf, when you watch a pro golfer hit a golf ball, you're like, God, they make it look so easy, you know? But it's because what they're good at, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're really good at it because, you know, and you get immediate feedback with golf, you know? You know when you hit a good shot. But I think for me, it's been that. I and mean, that's been my experience. I haven't, I was never like, I'm going to do this thing. Right. This is going to be my thing, you know? And I think over the years, as far as a tracking engineer, I think I just, with the artists and bands I've worked with, you know, I, I still have relationships with those people. Like, they're friends of mine now, you know? Like, we, when you get that kind of feedback from people, like, you're like, okay, these people trust me with the way that I've helped them make their record. It's like, that's what I do. That's how it happens. And with the mixing, you know, when you get feedback and someone's like, I didn't even think this song was going to make the record and that sounds great now, you know, then usually those are the songs that are the easiest to do. Yeah. Usually. Not all the time, but a lot of times, you know. Uh, I, I think that's what's guided me into my lane is because I, I think making music is about collaboration. Like you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it in a vacuum. No. That's the best for me is like when you get at the end of a 12 hour day and everyone's like really excited about what you've made, you know, and it's just like, like that's what it's worth. You know, that that's what it's all about. And, and it sounds cliche saying that, but that's what, you know, guides me. That's what makes me go home and like go back to the hotel or wherever I am and somewhere in a different country and sleep for two hours because I still haven't adjusted on jet lag and get up and go back and do it the next day, you know? Yeah. I, I'd never thought about finding your lane that way, actually. When you said that, I was like, oh my God, that's like really, it is obvious, but I've never verbalized it that way or heard anybody else say it. Maybe certain people can be like, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, put my head down and only do this thing because this is what I really want to do. And I'm sure that works for some people, but I think, it, you know, it, it relies about so much on who you work with. Yeah. And what you accomplish with those people, you know? Because, like, if I mix a song for a band that, like, does really well, it's like, I, I wouldn't have done that by myself because they had to create the song in the first place, you know? Like, yeah, there, there's all these other forces that are shaping you, and it's just understanding. It's like, oh, that was fun and easy and successful. Maybe that's what I should be doing. Yeah. If you're going against the current, you're probably not going on, you know, on the right river (laughs) (laughs) well uh well put uh no i i agree i think um i think knowing where you excel and and where people love you to be is like that's like really the key to like a long-term thing you know yeah yeah. especially if support of of artists and collaborators you know like yeah but you also i I feel like you got to wander around you have to you have to try a lot of things, you know, before you discover what that oh, is. Absolutely, but absolutely. Like, um, I mean, I feel like I'm like just kind of figuring it out. I read a great interview with uh, Tom Elmhurst where he was like, "Yeah, I've been doing this for twenty years, and I think I know what I'm doing now." Yeah, he was talking about mixing on VR. He's like, "I've been you know, mixing on this console for so long, using these speakers for so long, and I think I'm just now figuring it out." And this was like an article from like. I think when he mixed like the second Adele record or something, so not that long. Not that, yeah. Relative to his career, it's a long journey. That's why everybody's got to just strap in, hold on, go for it. Yeah, but you know, it's it's worth it when you have those moments. You know, when you, especially when like, when the records like if they're big records that are going to be on the radio or whatever, and you hear something for the first time and you hadn't heard it in probably like nine months because it's been done and it's been on you know 
sitting at the record label waiting to be released and you hear something you've kind of forgotten how you made it which is the best yeah because it's impossible to listen to records after you just made them because you hear like every string in the guitar and like you hear you, you know where the bodies are buried <laughs> totally but yeah it's 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 enjoyable i mean i was driving i don't know earlier this year and i heard one of the seawolf songs on kcrw and the intro came in and i was like i know this song what is this <laughs> and then um alex starts singing i was like oh yeah this is seawolf i mixed this song that's amazing but yeah i mean that's what it's, that's what it's about you know and if you get a big song and you get a fat paycheck that's also awesome but you know yeah. I don't I think if anyone gets in this industry trying to make money, then they got another thing coming. Yeah, they do. All right. Well, is there uh you want to let people know where they can find you, website, internet? Somebody wants to do a mix or hang out, be your yeah. intern? I do have a website. I think it's mcook.net, all lowercase, I think. That's right. I mean, I'm only on Instagram. That's the only socials I'm on. I'm sure you'll put a link in the description below. There will be links. That's what the show notes are for. I, I pretty much only use my Instagram for posting stuff I've worked on and photos of my dog. So if you're into either of those, then you're in luck. This is the place for you. Amazing. All right, dude. Well, this was uh, this was great, dude. Thanks for coming on. I enjoyed this a lot. It was awesome. Yeah. I feel like it, it was just one of our normal talks, but into a microphone. That's right. That's right. Over a beer or coffee. So that's it for episode 16. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. Please like and share, subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, jump over to completeproducer.net and hang out with us over there. We're having a great time. We'll see you next week.